Dr. Nair, I'll release you from captivity if you vow to stop perpetuating the myth that Ronald Reagan won the Cold War. But Ms. Mann, it's an article of faith that Ronald Reagan won the Cold War. Oh? Ronald Reagan forced Khrushchev to back down during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Ronald Reagan went to China? Ronald Reagan led dissident movements in Poland and Czechoslovakia? Ronald Reagan flew to Berlin and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Funny how the wall kept standing for two and a half years after Reagan made that speech. Plus, he armed the Mujahideen so they could beat the Soviets in Afghanistan. Well, and they were never a problem again. Dr. Nair, do you want to be like the popular historians who are more interested in reinforcing the dominant narrative than in telling the truth? If you're asking whether I want to sell millions of books, the answer is yes. That might not be in the stars, Dr. Nair. Oh, but they are. Like the Reagans, I've retained the services of an astrologer. I'm on the cusp of greatness. Hmm. If astrologers can predict the future, how come Nancy didn't know about the assassination attempt on Ronnie? Perhaps she did. Perhaps she saw his low approval ratings and realized an attack would generate sympathy. Not even Nancy Reagan is that evil. Are you quite certain about that? Have you talked to one of her children? You're done talking, Dr. Nair. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, President 40, Ronald Reagan, Part 2. We continue to thank you for your continued interest and ears for DB Comedy Presents the Electables. We are coming up to the end of all of the presidents that America has had up until this moment. But we're not quite there yet, and any help that you can give us or any thanks you would like to give us, would be appreciated. If you haven't, please subscribe to DB Comedy Presents the Electables on whatever marketplace you are listening to this podcast. Also, don't forget to like and recommend so more folks can listen. If you like what you hear, please leave us a tip, or a donation if you will. Go to fracturedatlas.org and look up DB Comedy. Fractured Atlas is our fiscal sponsor. Any tip or donation you leave us is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. Please keep supporting us, because we are plotting life beyond the presidents, and we'd like you to keep listening. Thank you. Ladies, gentlemen, are we ready? Not really, but it has to be done. Okay. <laughs> Take one for the gipper, Sylvia. Yeah. <laughs> Take one to the gipper. The gipper. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Introductions, y'all. I'm Paul. I'm, I'm Sylvia. Sandy. I'm Sandy. Tommy. Joe. And I'm Patrick. And a historian.
I'm Chelsea. I'm James. Okay. So, yeah, going riffing through, uh, I know we started the first part of the Reagan episode by talking about the myth of Reaganism and all of that being built towards him getting in office, in sustaining him in office, and certainly in his myth being this foundational thing for the Republican Party and arguably the, the counterweight to FDR in the 30s. Agree, disagree? Reagan himself apparently did not entirely disavow his New Deal past, but he said that his, as he called it, the new federalism, that was one of the many ideas he proposed that failed, was actually a counterweight to the great society of the 60s, which was you know aimed at expanding <laughs> civil rights and ending poverty. And we can't have that. And it's worth noting, arguably the biggest achievement of the New Deal was the Social Security, and of the Great Society was Medicare, and Reagan or at least his advisors were too savvy to touch either. At least right away, at least mm -hmm. directly. Yeah, I would agree that he's uh, conservatism was kind of a more of a direct reply to Kennedy and LBJ's liberalism. So that was a more recent version. I'd agree with you there. But sir, but but the the modern conservatism as we know it, the style of it, the you know sort of centering on particular figures, the attacks on the poor, the cultural attacks in general. Um, it all, I mean, Reagan, Reagan, not, Reagan didn't generate it all, but Reagan helped, Reagan was the catalyst. Reagan made it. was it. the face of it. Yeah. I, I would agree with yes. Sandy because you did have people like Goldwater and um, William F. Buckley mm -hmm. who were more intellectual. Yeah, I was going to say they were more the... the the writers of it, the, yes. the the brain trust of it, and then Reagan she, was the face. Yeah, because Goldwater was just too damn scary, and <laughs> uh, Buckley didn't have the decency to hide his uh, elitist contempt. So, of but, but he was just so effete and erudite that um, he could pass it along, uh, except nobody could really listen to him, and so therefore he needed somebody a little more uh, salt of the earth, if you will, to convey the message. Okay, Joe, we'll Who's write you the character. Stop pitching, stop pitching. Yeah. It's done. A feat would not be the word I would use to describe Buckley. I mean, he almost got into fistfights with uh, Norman Mailer and- Well, who didn't? Yeah, yeah. and Vidal. also and Gore Vidal. Yeah. That would have been a slap fight, I'm sorry. Who are I think Gore Vidal could have beaten him. <laughs> And that happened in 1968, so which was sort of the beginning of the cr the real crumbling of the Democratic uh, majority uh, and the, the New Deal coalition. As we've discussed in previous episodes, do please revisit those to re revisit those as well. One of the things I think that it's always kind of tempting to do is, you know, and I think that in general, maybe I'm reading the room wrong, but I really don't think I am. Uh, that this uh, collection of, of people is inclined to be 
critical of Reagan and critical of the conservative movement in general. And I think it's always tempting to kind of see your enemy in monolithic terms, like this was the agenda, this was, you know, the organization, this was the enemy. I, I think the conservative movement was, in fact, much more fractured than that. But I think because Reagan didn't really have, it's not that he didn't have views, but he wasn't real policy specific, certainly. Um, and certainly he proved that his views were adaptable to what he thought was going to be successful, that there were a lot of people of kind of ascendant parts of the conservative movement who saw themselves as having a home in the Reagan camp. And sometimes these were very kind of different groups. Um, Are you talking about, say, the Christian Coalition and the Heritage Foundation? Sure, right. I mean, exactly, right? The the um, Midwest Conservatives, Ivy League Conservatives. Yep. You know, the kind of uh, libertarian free marketeers, kind of the, the leftover of the Goldwater group. Southern Democrats. Southern Democrats, um, which maybe kind of Reagan's old New Dealism would have appealed a little bit more to. And then working class Americans, right? That was kind of the big thing was that, that Reagan was able to win over these white working class voters. Uh, in And I don't even necessarily know that that had more, anything to do with policy per se, but more just kind of the cultural values that he claimed to espouse, they saw as being more in line with how they saw themselves than with the Democratic Party or what was perceived to be the Democratic Party, I guess. And, and then you've got like the kind of the, the more aggressive foreign policy people who are kind of, they had lost a lot of credibility after Vietnam. And so they were looking to uh, to, to kind of get back in. And so those, uh, all those groups, and then you've got, you know, just the kind of uh, Wall Street and the business community, are kind of all kind of circling and saying, okay, yes, we can fit in with this guy. This guy can 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 kind of carry water for us politically. Um, and I think Reagan, his successes as a politician was the fact that he was able to be a chameleon. That that his whether or not he was a good actor in terms of Hollywood, he was a great actor as a politician. And that he could mold himself to carry the image and the message that was going to be politically successful in that moment. And, and that moment became 1980. When we did last leave our last episode, Reagan was just finishing up his second term as California governor didn't want to run again. And that was about 1974. And so there's another election coming up in 1976. And again, we remember Gerald Ford be, becoming president at the time. And really a moment where I think having sort of been around, uh, you know, having been a, just about a teenager to, at, at that time myself, that coming off of the 1974 midterm, coming off of whoever Gerald Ford was, there was, I think for a moment, a genuine thought that the Republican Party was done for. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always the thing, is I, I think that you get these big wave elections 
and a, a party just gets wiped out electorally and people are kind of like, well, okay, they, they've got to be done. But that's the thing about democracies is that power abhors a vacuum. And so if there's not 80% of the people behind one political party or, or another, and and that's un, pretty unlikely, then the other political party is likely to rise again some way or another. I, I do think that the... If you look at the Republican nominees, you've got post-World War II, you've got Dewey, Eisenhower, clearly establishment guys. You know, Dewey didn't win, but he was competitive. Eisenhower wins. Nixon in 60, here, you know, kind of on definitely on Eisenhower's coattails running as an establishment Republican in 60. And then you've got Goldwater, who definitely is is not an establishment Republican, is definitely on the outside, wins the nomination in 64 in, in that kind of weird campaign where a lot of kind of bigger name Republicans didn't really run run because they didn't think they could win. And so that just becomes a weird election, but it kind of discredits the more fringe wing of the Republican Party, at least kind of the Goldwater part of it. Nixon comes back in 68 basically an establishment Republican, at least that's how he runs, although his kind of dog whistles to the fringes are kind of successful in kind of expanding his appeal. Ford definitely kind of steers more establishment, but I think by 76, um, there's kind of been enough kind of discontent with the establishment wing of the Republican Party because, partly because of Watergate, partly because of some of the Vietnam stuff, but moreover, just because they are seen, I think, as being a, a as being out of touch, basically, with with a, a, you know with most Republicans. And then you know, again, the, the establishment had been concentrated in the Northeast, whereas a lot of the Republicans now are from you know the West uh, and 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 increasingly from the South. And so, I think by '76, you start to have people seeing Ford's weakness. And seeing that Ford's brand of republicanism may not be what they're looking for, start to say, is there somebody else we could run who might be successful, who might more represent what our views are? And, and so ultimately, Reagan starts to kind of collect those folks. I hereby declare this meeting of the Republican Wheeler Dealer Backroom Trilateral Commission to be open. Let's get this done. I don't want to miss Carter country. Oh, I ordered some Chinese. Can you get it? I bet I'm going to have to pay it again. You don't look like the delivery boy. My name's Mies, Ed Mies. I want to talk to the leaders of the Republican Wheeler Dealer Backroom Trilateral Commission. Go ahead. Really? This is it? Phyllis Schlafly and Barry Goldwater? That's all there is of the smoke-filled rooms of the once mighty Republican Party? You're rather impudent. This is pathetic. It's 1979. Watergate's been years ago. You haven't done anything to reorganize? Son, I know you're new to the ways of our party, so let us give you a quick lesson in how things work. Ever since the dawn of the New Deal and that class traitor Roosevelt came on the scene, 
We Republicans have become synonymous with greed, selfishness, unbridled capitalism, and the worst parts of the Great Depression. Ah, oh, those were the days. So we meet here at the Republican Wheeler Dealer Backroom Trilateral Commission and move our agenda when we can and where we can. Happy in the thought that our sleepy party will maintain its status for as long as we are alive. Big fish can survive in small ponds quite nicely. Well, fuck those traditions. Oh, my. You've always dreamed of a day when you could drown the New Deal in a pool of the blood of the poor. But ever since 1929, that has been an impossible dream, right? Pretty much. Uh, there's someone I want to introduce you to. The answer to your prayers and our dreams. The face of the Republican Renaissance and the defeat of Roosevelt once and for all. Is this the place, Mommy? We're here, Ronnie. Hello, Mr. Meese. Hello, la lady and gentleman. <laughs> Mr. Death Valley Days? Oh, laugh away. The lone Republican in all of Hollywood is going to make America forget FDR. Ronnie has already forgotten about him. Well, that's true. I used to be a Democrat, and then General Electric started paying me enough money to make me realize just how much Roosevelt brainwashed me. I, for one, remember that spoken word photograph record you made about the evils of Medicare a few years back. Oh, that's not all. Ronnie named names while he was president of that actor's union. That vulgar McCarthy and Nixon? He's one of the reasons our party is as weak and despised as it is. Exactly. Look at this man. Does that smile look like it was soaked in bile and bourbon like Tail Gunner Joe's? Do his jowls look as dark and forbidding as Tricky Dick's? Does he even look as boring and straight-laced as a general from Kansas? Do you mind? He might hear us. Oh, don't you worry about me. I may hear, but I won't listen to a word you're saying. You won't? Oh, heck no. Oh, people think I'm an airhead. All I know is, it sure was a pretty morning today. It's so hard to hate someone this sunny and bright, isn't it? And the best part is, he wants to get rid of the New Deal, the Civil Rights Movement, and so much more. Well, I don't know about that. But I do think this country would be better if everyone could simply get a job being a spokesperson for a giant corporation, like I did. And if they can't, well, why should they get anything from the government? It's not like they earned it. How can you not love him? This is ridiculous. He's not even a good actor. Who the hell is going to vote for him? Maybe. Phyllis, really? But Republicans have either been hated thanks to Nixon or faceless thanks to Eisenhower. And all the while, that damn Roosevelt sneers at us from his grave. Not to mention Eleanor. A gauche creature. Barely a woman. This is your chance. I say, make Mr. Reagan the new chair of the Republican Wheeler Dealer Backroom uh, Trilateral Commission. If we do, I can have many more people to this meeting next week. Young people from churches and Wall Street in the South will be happy to funnel money and people to put Mr. Reagan and many of his friends in Washington. And to get to work redefining everything this party has done for the last 40 years. I vote no. I don't. I'm older than Methuselah. I want to travel 
and get women back into the kitchens, barefoot and pregnant, and not waste time at silly meetings like this. I vote yay. You won't regret it. Which means even if I vote no, I lose. Vote yes. Make it unanimous. Get a taste of what it's like to be on top. Well, if you vote for me, I'll begin bobbing in five minutes. I'll make people forget Truman dropped the bomb. It'll even make you like daisies again, Barry. <sighs> Fine. It is unanimous. Mr. Reagan, you are now the leader of the Republican Wheeler Dealer Backroom Trilateral Commission. Yeah, that, that's too wordy. Call yourselves the Morning in America Commission. Whatever. Do we really think a smile and amnesia will make people in this country switch parties? Uh, nothing else has worked, but uh, this will. I'll believe it when I see it. Is it dinner time yet, Mommy? Oh, yes, Ronnie. We'll be eating plenty. Oh, yay! Our Chinese food is here. Can we chip in and pay the guy? Oh, let's just put it on a credit card and let our grandkids pay for it. Right, Barry? I like you. To me, I, I don't think people were shocked that Reagan won in 1980. I think people were surprised at the margin. Mm-hmm. But, but I don't think that his beating Carter, who I think looked pretty weak in November 1980, was a surprise to, to many experts. George H.W. Bush put up a fight, but you know it became clear, I think, fairly early that, that Reagan had had the better machine, had the better campaign, and... Perhaps that was part of that, you know, effort was that his ability to get his voters out during the primaries to make him look like a strong candidate going into the general. But, yeah, I I think that that Reagan's messaging and his, you know, ability to convey a a message of alliance with all these different people in the who were willing to vote for him. You know, I mean, that's that's why they call him the great communicator. I mean, if you're looking for something to praise about Reagan, he really did, I think, have the ability to seem personally non-threatening, but also to make you feel like he was going to represent you. And I think that between religious conservatives, working class whites and anti-government free market people... He was able to unite all three of these sometimes disparate factions mm-hmm. under his banner and make them feel like his administration would represent them and motivated them to get out and, and vote for him. Yeah, and um, probably so confident that, you know, he didn't really need a hedge against anything that might have happened overseas that might have screwed anything. Oh, wait. Um, yeah, we're uh, talking about Reagan... Obviously, we've all we've all been brainwashed into thinking he was a historical inevitability in 1980. But he and Carter were tied in polls in September of that year. And then, of course, things just got worse. As they so often did, things just got worse for Carter. I don't know what the exact economic situation was, but it appeared worse by November, uh, thanks to the administrations of Paul Volcker. Economically, and obviously... The hostages had not been released. The hostages. Mm-hmm. What about the hostages? Well, it sounds like uh, the Republicans put their hand on the scale. 
as they did, I'm sorry, their thumb on the scale, whatever the appropriate expression is there. As oh, they were done the appropriate appendage. <laughs> yeah. They, they laid down on that scale full body and they, uh, <laughs> they basically prevented the hostages release to weaken the Democratic opponent's position going into the election, a la Nixon, uh, coming up against Johnson in the yeah. 68, or I'm sorry, doing that to Johnson in the 68 election. Doing it to Humphrey in the 68 election, yes. Thank you. That's you were just doing it to the Democrats, period. I know that through corrupt dealings, the hostages were held hostage that much longer. Do we know if anything extra had happened to them beyond with the beyond what they were already suffering to the best of my knowledge they weren't abused or tortured that i'm aware of um no they weren't but i mean of course you also remember that the inauguration day was also the day the super bowl was played in 1981 and we know that because just before the kickoff lo and behold that's when the hostages were released wow yeah well, it could have just been for the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> We've had them long enough. God, let them go and see the big football game. As I recall, they tied a giant ribbon around the Louisiana Superdome where the Super Bowl is being played. Was it a yellow ribbon? Of course. Of course. I mean, honestly, when you think about it, the only thing they didn't do was hire Tony Orlando to sing while they were coming off the tarmac. <laughs> They'd have probably hired Eddie Rabbit instead. Does anyone have personal reminiscences of Election Day 1980? I was not alive. No, was I. <laughs> I remember the Super awesome. Bowl and the choreography. I mean, there there was actual choreography of here they're coming down and here the game is starting to to get to get going. January 21st, he becomes president. March 30th. 1981, he damn near leaves thanks to a bullet. Mm. Which that which also meant he had to break another tradition of American presidents elected in a year ending in zero, not finishing their term alive. But he does. He got close to carrying on with the tradition. He was apparently, this is another thing that we learn years later, in far worse shape he lost half the blood in his body and he Ooh. developed pneumonia none yeah, of which was, was made public. i never realized how bad how close to death he was he punctured along yeah. they really try to underplay it now one of the things i think when was... wilson had his stroke they just said the american people couldn't handle it so we're going to not talk about it or i think it was but... a very specific pr campaign on behalf of you know the reagan the Reagan team, the, the first things we all heard was, you know, Ronald Reagan said, oh, forgot to duck, honey. And he's saying to the surgeon, I hope you're a Republican. And but, also Alexander Haig going, I'm in charge. Ah, yes, yeah, so there's, <laughs> there's a few things from the from the Reagan assassination that I think are... are attempt. Are, Reagan assassination attempt. Attempt. Thank um, you. <laughs> that are, I think are, are, are telling um, for his administration and, and also just kind of presidential assassinations generally, which is that they just kind of tend to come out of the blue like this guy was trying to impress his a yeah female I, I celebrity and it was just yeah it I, was really bizarre one there's the whole thing with alexander haig and hey we had actually tried to solve this problem with the 25th amendment but 
then no one paid any attention to that. And somehow Alexander Haig's running the White House for several hours. Or attempted um, to. <laughs> and so that was a, a tendency I feel like is prevalent in Republican administrations, which is that no one actually really knows what the rules are. And then when shit hits the fan, no one knows what the rules are and everything goes haywire, despite everyone's like, oh, yeah, we're totally in control. And then, oh, no, we don't actually know what the policy is. We don't know what the rules are. What the hell is happening? So that was, I, I think, not the last time that would be an issue in the Reagan administration or in every Republican administration subsequently. And not that Democrats are immune from that by any means, but I feel like at least in the Obama and Biden administrations, they've been better about it. And then also the way that Reagan is able to capitalize politically from from being shot and almost dying, right? One, it's just it's just a cool story, right? Like you get shot, you didn't die, you survived, you recovered. People are going to be sympathetic or inclined to be sympathetic anyways. But also just, you know, the, the line about asking the doctors like, geez, I hope uh, none of you are Democrats. That was that was seen as humorous. It, you know, it was it was it was a joke. And I think it was a joke that was successful. It, it just kind of adding a, a sense of humor, but also a humor that projects confidence and reassuredness in what could have been a tense situation, even if at the same time, it kind of is almost kind of careless. Right. And I think that's Reagan is perhaps the original sin of anti-intellectualism in the Republican Party. <laughs> where Certainly a stripe of it. Right. He, he like, because certainly it's not Nixon, right? I mean, Nixon wasn't an intellectual, but he knew what the hell he was talking about. Whereas Reagan really kind of takes pains to show that he doesn't actually know what the hell he's talking about. That saves his skin with the Iran-Contra thing, where basically he's able to claim that Despite the fact that this was a major effort by his administration, he knew nothing about it. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Plus, um, he was in the throes of Alzheimer's, so they said, yeah, we just can't do that. And well, see, now I've read that that may have actually been the catalyst for the Alzheimer's really kicking in, and it makes sense. Our encounter the assassination? The assassination. Okay. Oh, no, that's interesting. Because oh, yeah. I was going to say, is it? I, I could imagine that being the Iran Contra, where he's like, I'll just pretend I don't remember anything, and then it becomes real. You know, James, there is something that I guess we have to grudgingly admit to about the Reagan White House that they got that, like that one liner, the quips, and they got it out there so fast that that became the story as much. I honestly, I think when people started to hear that, People went, oh, I guess he'll be okay. And to like Sandy going, well, we had no idea how bad he was. That could very well have been one of the reasons why. Reagan provided his the, his own perfect cover and his people knew it and played it. Yeah. yeah I, I have a counterfactual I want to pitch. I know we I know we don't always entertain these, but I, I'm really curious about this. What if we did entertain yeah. counterfactuals? Yeah, what if we were on a podcast where we did this frequently and complained every time that we don't? Now, if if Reagan had died in 1981, would Jodie Foster have been impressed? <laughs> so Reagan survives. He could have been William Henry Harrison, for Christ's sake. Should have so, worn a coat. 
Could have should have worn a coat. Well, he did wear a coat, but they cut. They had to cut the suit, and so I just should have worn a bubble of black vest. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, thousand dollar suit. Nancy liked expensive stuff for Ronnie too. So then he has to start dealing with Congress, and here we come to another myth that I remember that he had this nemesis in Tip O'Neill, one of the great House speakers, hardcore Democrat, and yet you had all of these stories of. They would fight like hell and then have a beer afterwards to talk. Well, that's what people it. did back then. You, it, it was like the sheepdog and the coyote. They may have their jobs <laughs> may have been to fight in Congress and you know be adversarial, but at the end of it, they would go have a beer. Even Bob Dole says he remembers times like that. You know, I think kind of my analysis of it because Reagan, I don't think ever had a full congressional majority. I think maybe the Republicans held the Senate for a few years. I think they got it in 80. But but never had the House. But at the same time, I think that what ended up happening was that Reagan had won a lot of districts Democratic House members held, right? And I think they all of a sudden start looking around and saying, oh, my the people who voted for me are Reagan voters. I better vote with what Reagan wants to do or I'm going to get voted out of office. And so I think that that phenomenon created a very weak Democratic House majority that was very much wanting to see be seen as being compromising towards Reagan rather than as being totally hostile to his agenda. I, I think Tip O'Neill was happy to be seen with Reagan. Honestly, I I think that he saw his ability to get stuff done with Reagan as being politically useful for him and for his House majority and being able to go back to their constituents and say, hey, look, we're working with the president. We're still bringing home the bacon. You don't need to send a Republican to Congress to get stuff done. Keep sending us Democrats and we'll keep working with the president. Unfortunately, I think in doing that, they sold a lot of people down the river who had been the beneficiaries of programs that had been established by previous Democratic presidents. Mm-hmm. If I may, 1981, you first had the Reagan assassination attempt. Then we had this uh, grain embargo on the Soviets that Carter imposed, got rid of that in April. Also in April, nominates the first woman to the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor. Then in August, oh, no big deal here. Fires all air traffic air traffic, traffic controllers destroys pat code and they but, voted for him too and they voted for him more, you, you uh, get, like get rid of the unions and uh his first tax cut like literally a week and a half after firing all the patco workers his first and only tax cut i would like to say mm-hmm. didn't he mostly raise taxes five times yep yeah, despite despite i believe saying the opposite Right. As most Republicans do. Because I, think, the- I think at the end of Reagan's administration, taxes were still lower than they were at the beginning, but he had cut them so savagely in 81 that it just totally blew a hole in the de- budget. And they never really fixed that, but nope. also they kind of learned that nobody really cared either. And so then they kind of raise taxes a little bit to kind of say, oh, we're trying to address the deficit. And 
Well, also because they started, you know, the B one bomber. Right. They 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 spent massively on defense spending, and of course, yes. defense spending is the the gift that keeps giving in the opposite direction, where you start spending and then you just can't stop because it balloons mm. out of control. Yep. Can I ask my stupid question now? Please. Reagan was actually a Keynesian Democrat in disguise. It's just that his stimulus program had a militaristic right-wing tint because instead of spending on the conserv- you know, conservation corps or on uh, Head Start, he spent on the military. That was his stimulus program. He was a Keynesian economist. He was a Keynesian economist who stimulated the economy with rampant government spending. Well, and of course, Keynes would tell you that that not only that that tax cuts can be a form of stimulus too, and so the tax cut for, provided some level of stimulus. And sure, defense spending is generally less efficient than other forms of government spending, but does ultimately, you know, get to people, get to you know, people making bombers, gets to actual soldiers and sailors who spend it so it, it does work um I, I don't i don't i don't think that there's any I, I don't know that reagan really had a philosophy of economics that that was that sophisticated other than <laughs> well uh, but, 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 no 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 if you give tax cuts to the rich it will trickle down and help everyone well, the rising tide helps all yeah. money. The rising tide helps all helps all navy cruisers. Voodoo or um, no voodoo. The, those first few years of the of the Reagan administration, the economy was quite bad, and this mm-hmm. was the, the holdover of of the Volcker interest rate raise mm-hmm. right at the end of, of of Carter's presidency, and just a real kind of shock to unemployment. Um, and then once you kind of had the then you started the and it, it, it again like reagan really was the beneficiary of some good cycle luck right because if 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 volcker raises taxes or raises the interest rates in 81 or 82 instead of in i forget if it was late 79 or 80 that he does it if, if he did it a couple years later then Reagan would have been running for re-election amidst like the worst economy many of those people had ever seen, at least in terms of unemployment. But no, because he raises rates a little bit earlier than that, by 84, it's starting to bear fruit a little bit and that they have brought inflation down and the kind of long-term expectations of inflation had come down. And then you start to see people are willing to invest a little bit more. People are willing to spend a little bit more. Employment picks up, business investment picks the up, and then market starts that, going up. Right, that leads to kind of the the Wall Street explosion there at the end of the eighties, as 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 businesses kind of pick up, and you you also start to have the beginnings of real kind of efficiency improvements from from digital and computer technology um, starting to come into the into the swing of the economy and, and pushing things there by the it, mid to late eighties. He also had the enemy to build against the dreaded Soviet Union, which I'm sure had had to help sell some of the economic spending to kind of say, hey, evil empire, evil empire, evil empire, which he was what which he was wont to do during that first term, especially. 
And to me, the, the thing that's so silly is that really Carter had the had the toughest stance with the Soviets of, I think, any post-World War II president. Carter's the one who raised the big stink on civil rights. Carter's the one who institutes the grain embargo. Carter's the one who boycotts the Olympics in Moscow. Carter's the one who raises hell about Afghanistan. We already talked about Reagan comes in, he reverses the grain embargo. He starts selling bread to the Soviets again, which was really essential for them because they had a had a food shortage without being able to import grain. But he also had Poland and Solidarity and Lech Walesa and this foil that he could use against all of these ancient Soviet leaders that were dropping in and out throughout his first term, you know, uh, all over the place. And when did he deliver his Berlin <coughs> speech? Am I early? 80, yeah, that was 87. Oh, it was 87 when he goes to turn down that wall with Gorbachev. Uh, this wall, uh, Mr. Gorbachev. Uh, but he does go to Berlin in 82. And maybe that's where Bonzo went to Bit Bitburg, as we talked about. And has a couple Great of Ramon feet. song. Mm -hmm. Great Ramon song. Mm -hmm. Before Reagan, the American military did not have a good reputation in the culture as a whole, coming off Vietnam, coming off of a lot of, you know, the stories of the wasteful, wasteful government spending. So there was a certain rehab that had to be done to the reputation of the military, which Reagan certainly did, whether it was the B-1 bomber or Star Wars or... Or winning Trump. really small, insignificant wars that stirred up patriotic fervor. Say, but making forget it a, the heroism of Granada. Hey, yeah. A win is a win, baby. Granada, right? USA, USA. I mean, Thatcher did it with the Falkland Islands. It's a war so small, you have to remind Americans whose lifetime it happened in that mm -hmm. it happened. Yep, 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 yep. Was that 82 or 83? That was 83. It was 83, and it happened after. Again, we want to talk about Reagan, this great uh, friend of the military. Um, Anybody remember the bombing of barracks in Beirut? Yeah, there were a couple times. Like to have the horrific that was that was eighty three, October eighty three, two hundred forty one dead, terrorist attack. Somehow the mistake that I have read, which Reagan made, and it was never a problem again, was that he <laughs> saw problems in the Middle East as a proxy for the Cold War. Everything was a proxy for the Cold War. So that's why he figured giving weapons to Islamofascist militants in Afghanistan was never going to have any blowback. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> 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 the, the suicide bombing was October 23rd, 1983. The victory in Grenada... October 25th, 1983, two days later. So you feel that this was a direct, you know, diversion? I don't know how long it takes to organize these things. I am not in the military, but... Uh, you said it was October 25th, right? So October 25th was the invasion. October 23rd was the Lebanon bombing. Very, very true. Yeah, I think I think you should have learned something from Teddy Roosevelt in the Spanish-American War. You want a short, successful war, but it has to be long enough that people are aware of it. So you get that publicity, too. 
Well, I a couple do of remember months, that's ideal. The summer months. It did knock the the Beirut bombings off the off the headlines and the then nascent cable news television for those that had it. Because that that's just getting birthed right around now, right around this time. Though everybody got their MTV because that's really what they wanted. DB Comedy welcomes our first sponsor. And we welcome anyone that would like to advertise on DB Comedy Podcasts. Reach out to us at dbcomedychicago at gmail.com or on our Facebook page, DB Comedy. Rates are very reasonable. And we welcome your patronage. Timely Comedies. We are not having my grandfather's funeral in Animal Crossing. Historical dramas. Good evening, Mr. Wells. I'm sorry, do I know you? I'm Orson Wells. Ah, I should have known your voice. I'm here to, as we say in America, bury the hatchet. A medieval epic. A calf, springing over the grass, bounded up to us. The pen of God will be written on your skin, and you will live forever. Continuous Dream Theater is a podcast of audio dramas and comedies by Chicago playwright and author Amy Kreider. Just visit www.continuousdream.com and click on an episode title to enjoy a range of award-winning entertainment. That's www.continuousstream.com. Continuous Stream is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast player. Thank you. So, so deficits are rising. The military is getting built up. Um, unions are being decimated. Budget cuts to the social safety net, as we used to call it, are getting slashed. And yet, our Gipper is just prevailing, just rising, just he's 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 loved he's adored he's 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 our avuncular grandpa well i don't know if i'd go that far and and well i mean not in my world but you know that's (laughs) he's he's a lot like a lot of grandfathers i know he's like he's pretty racist but he's pleasant enough that you don't acknowledge it and his opinions (laughs) on drugs and aids are outdated even by the time i I think i think even in the earliest times he's in 82 no. and 83 are tough years. I I, I think that I, again, if, if yeah, they I, had I was in college, you don't have to tell me. Or, <laughs> you know, and if, if the Democrats had, had nominated somebody who had some kind of cross cultural appeal, that the Democrats could have had a, 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 a competitive race in 84. That doesn't happen for a couple of Why reasons. Why did they pick Mondale? Next man, well, next man, genuine up. question. Okay, so the '84 election. Okay, this is this is. I'm st- okay. I'm starting to remember this. His oh, so F, well. First of all, the guy that they really wanted was Gary Hart. Yep. But they couldn't get Gary Hart because Gary Hart said, "What hands. do you mean I'm chasing women? If you followed me, you would never find any." 
And they followed him and they found one. On, was on 86, a, 87, on, I believe. Was that, was that card? Oh, Hart was 86. Well, no, they did talk about, uh, they talked about him in 84. Jerry Brown was someone they talked about in 84. The only guy that decided to run was Jesse Jackson. And, and they didn't, he, uh, they didn't like, you know, form a union behind him to support him. He was, Jesse Jackson. well, because well, Jesse claimed he was running to, he didn't think he would win, but mm -hmm. he was running to draw attention to certain issues. Like the, like the devastation of Reaganism in black <laughs> communities, utterly, completely true. <laughs> Fact check yep. true. Just like Bruce Springsteen records Bored in the USA, which is clearly an incredibly yes. critical yes. song that Ronald and a work of nativism and that Ronald Reagan shamelessly appropriates yep. at the Republican National Convention, <laughs> the theme of which let us now invoke it's Morning in America. Oh God. Morning yeah. America was a video montage. Mm -hmm. Only showed it once. And everybody remembers it just like that was also the same year, 1984. Apple runs the 1984 ad on the Super Bowl. They only ran it once and everybody remembers it. Hey, Union. Your speech for my New Jersey event tomorrow will be the biggest thing to hit that state since the Hindenburg. Well, just listen to this finish. <clears throat> America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts. It rests in the message of hope in a song by the great American composer and New Jersey resident Jerome Kern. Look for the silver lining. Well, hold the phone there, Peggy. Didn't the communists steal that song and turn it into the internationale? No. But the Ladies' Garment Workers' Union did adopt it into Look For the Union Label. It's like my old friend Will Rogers once said, called magenta, but it's still pink. I can't quote a union hymn. But, Mr. President, you used to be president of a union. And I felt so darn guilty about it that I gave the names of several members to HUAC and the FBI. Find another song. Okay, let's try this. It's reflected in the words of New Jersey native Jerry Herman, whose hit Broadway musical La Cajo Fall features a song called The Best of Times. Yeah, not so fast, Peggy. Isn't La Cajo Fall about a couple of, uh, you know, odd fellows? Yes, but Mr. President, the orchestra at the Republican convention last month played The Best of Times. And I'll bet you Joe and Jane Average thought that tune was written by a real man. Like Stephen Sondheim. I can't risk looking like I approve of homosexuality. It's like my old friend Benny Goodman once said, two fruits don't make a salad. All right, let's try. It can be heard in the words of New Jersey's favorite son, Frank Sinatra, when he sang, the air of feeling free, that's America to me. Oh, holster those six shooters, Peggy. I can't go courting old blue eyes. Not only did he campaign for John F. Kennedy, that man is more mobbed up than a Sicilian funeral fund. You do realize, Mr. President, that Frank Sinatra contributed millions of dollars to your 1980 campaign? Well, so did many good fellows, but they had the good sense to stay anonymous. It's like my old friend Winston Churchill once said, the enemy of my enemy is worth two in the bush. 
Okay. How about... It can be heard in the words of New Jersey-born songwriter Paul Simon's song, American Tune, when he sang, We come in the age's most uncertain hour. Well, chill your mixture, Peggy. Didn't Paul Simon become popular in the 60s? Yeah. Lots of your voters used to listen to him before they abandoned their ideals. Well, I can't acknowledge a 60s icon, Peggy. I was elected to erase the 60s from our collective memory. From the Great Society to the Civil Rights Movement to, uh... To, to California Governor Ronald Reagan calling for a bloodbath in our nation's campuses? Who would if I did? It's like my old friend Claire Booth Luce once said, Bloodbath, mudbath, he's still cuter than Dudley Do-Right. Aren't there more contemporary songs we can reference? Like that Bruce Springsteen fellow George Will keeps raving about. Isn't he from New Jersey? Well, cool your jets, Mr. President. You don't seriously want to quote born in the USA in a speech, do you? Well, why not? It sounds like a swell number. And the nativists in the Republican Party will appreciate the idea that people born in America are better than immigrants. Mr. President, a born in the USA is not, well, not just a xenophobic anthem, it's a protest song about how big business and government are sending American jobs overseas. And you think that's a problem? Yes. And so will everyone else if you admit to it. <laughs> oh, silly Peggy. I've crushed the unions, demonized the poor, and devastated our inner cities. No one could think I'm on the side of the average American unless they suffer from old-timers disease. Don't you mean Alzheimer's? No, I mean old-timers. It's like my old friend General Pershing once said, nostalgia is the opiate of the masses. So let's all have a snort. Just like people would rather believe in the America I describe than the America that exists, this audience will applaud what they think Bruce Springsteen is saying, not his actual message. I guess that's it then. America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts. It rests in the message of hope, in the songs of a man so many young Americans admire, New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen. I'll save you a dance at my inaugural, Peggy. Mr. President, how could you be such a cynical bastard and such an incurable optimist at the same time? Well... It's like my old friend F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. <laughs> and here I thought it meant slow cognitive decline. <laughs> Not slow, Peggy. Not slow at all. If the early 80s was all about trying to recover and Reagan being this weird symbol of recovery, even though a lot of the symbolism was completely manufactured, you get to that second term, holy flipping hell, everything just starts going nuts. Culturally, economically, politically, foreign policy-wise, personally to reagan himself with whatever the hell was going on in his mind or not going on in his mind 
<laughs> what? Well, it's like every minute. Yeah, every I would guess in a second. Cabinet <laughs> seemed to have had a scandal. Uh, okay, here's my question starting around Contra. And you're, you're going to, if you're going to talk around Contra, you're going to talk both sides of the hyphen. Why the hell did Republicans always believe such shitty intelligence about the Middle East? <laughs> Middle East, white was central, the Contras in Central America, they had bad. Uh, anyway, good yep. question. Yep. And it never so, happened again. The CIA is a shitty intelligence organization, and it always has been. Hello, the CIA, who is the, listening right now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I could say that without any fear of repercussion, because they're bad at their job, and they're they spend Often most of their time so. trying to pretend like they're not bad at their job and cover up for the fact that they're really bad at their job. Um, this has been the case since the organization was founded. Their like successes have been like just total random. How the hell did that happen? Shots in the dark that they pulled off. That they basically the, the two. They got two major successes. One was the overthrowing Arbenz in '54, which again was just like everything went right at the like exact moment. And then they had one good source about the 67 Israel was going to do the counter or the surprise attack in the six day war. Um, other than that, they're, they're pretty much oh for the whole thing. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I've said it before, probably on this show, and I'll say it again. The most successful thing the CIA ever did LSD. was, <laughs> was uh, launch the career of Jackson Pollock. And They're did really you see the Iowa movies. Writers Workshop too? And, and, yeah, yes. and, and to a lesser degree, Kurt Vonnegut. Okay, <laughs> to, to somewhat to somewhat soften my criticism of the CIA, the CIA is really good at taking pictures of stuff from a long way away, <laughs> right? That that is their motive. That is what they're good at. Put a spy satellite, put a U two up there, take a picture, show it to people. That they can do. Um, when it comes to actually being on the ground and having real human intelligence sources. They have no idea who to look for. They have no idea how to vet anybody. So they get just, they either collect no intelligence at all, which like communist China, they had nothing. North Korea, they've never had anything. Um, or they have like all the people who are disgruntled or have a ax to grind against so-and-so. And then they get all kinds of just lousy intelligence. Um, or, or they accidentally get... create the Taliban. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the, it's not just Republicans. I think Republicans for whatever reason are perhaps somewhat more likely to buy what the CIA is telling them some, because it, it serves their agenda. Well, but it was also, certainly true in that era. Um, you know, and, and I think for Reagan, like if he's like, okay, well, we want to show American, you know, muscular militarism and the CIA is saying, we got to do something about this. You got to do something about this. That makes it easy to give, you know, have an excuse to do just that. Um, but I think, you know, you know, it's tough because presidents bring these people in and they're like, well, I'm the expert on this and I'm telling you this. And the president doesn't necessarily know anything more than that guy does. But the president should say like, no, you're full of shit. You got to be straight with me. Um, but presidents are generally speaking, not inclined to do that. Well, um, I, I, again, living through that era, the whole notion that you mean communists are going to take over this little country in Central America, work their way through to Mexico, and then apparently set up a beachhead in Arizona, the whole thing, but they bought it. They they decided, no, this was Cuba. really serious. We mm -hmm. have to, 
We have to, no good. Too many Cubans in Miami. They were going to like Central. No, but they, I mean, they got a beachhead. Communism got a beachhead in Cuba, and the Republicans pretty much said, "We're just not going to have any kind of communism in this hemisphere." Yeah, and no Cuba on our watch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Leave us not forget the influence Reagan from what uh, from the psychobiographies I have read <laughs> was compelled by heroic stories. And Adolfo Calero and the other displaced uh, corrupt magnates of the Somoza era oh, yeah. were very good at selling themselves to the Reagan administration as the freedom fighters of the 1980s. That's, uh, you know, the original patriots. That's why Reine said, I'm a Contra too. Uh, Sue, uh, Sue. So should we blame James Monroe for this whole whole nonsense we can blame james monroe for, for probably every shitty thing we did in central and south america but there was a reagan doctrine as i recall which he violated with impunity <laughs> but what was can someone to articulate what because i'm forgetting we don't negotiate with terrorists oh that oh right 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 right, right. oh okay. uh, the so stupid, the stupid thing that american intelligence did was they believed one, they believed that there were Iranian Iranian moderates ready to overthrow the Ayatollah and work with the United States and reestablish relationships. Two, they be believed that this sleazebag arms dealer was going to uh, was going to funnel weapons through Israel to Ir to Iran. In return for these hostages, and three, they listened when the same idiot said, "Hey, why don't you take the extra money from these sales and funnel it to your friends, the Contras?" And kind of, you know, to and I believe the quote with Reagan was, "That's a neat idea." Yeah, Bud Kate, uh, Bud Point, no, what's Point Dexter, Casey, Bud McFarland? They all thought it was a great idea. And Oliver and North, the guy who thought it was flat out awesome, was Oliver North. Yep, because working because working as McFarland's uh chief flunky he had responsibilities in both iran and nicaragua in, in central america he is the hyphen as someone it's... who was born in 1987 uh <laughs> two things about this first okay. uh i just saw that uh you know reagan's uh chief of staff was named donald reagan and i thought i was having a stroke reagan reagan I read uh, it. Vegan. I read it. But uh, <laughs> so what about Contra? I read Contra, I guess, was scandalous, as it is so very fitting in the way that we can conduct foreign policy, especially in South America. Because Congress had passed and multiple, multiple times renewed laws prohibiting American aid to the Contras. To send them plane loads of AK-47s was an impeachable violation of U.S. law. To say nothing of the fact that cash was exchanged. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they were laundering the money. But oh, yeah. um, is there, like, I know with Watergate, somebody left the door open at the hotel and that's how they got found. What was the way, was there some comical way that Iran-Contra came out or? A plane full of AK, a plane full of, you know, Russian-made weapons being smuggled by the U.S. crashed in Nicaragua, that and I believe it was late 1985, 
And when you start unspooling that thread, it you know you you can take it straight to the White House because they kept denying. Oh, this was a private initiative. These were private citizens who somehow obtained large amounts of weapons and wanted to smuggle I mean, them to U.S. allies. They're private American citizens. To say nothing of, wait a minute, I thought Iran was our enemy, and now we're helping them. And I thought, you know, I thought the country, yeah, we're just like we're. We're help one enemy is supposed to help another enemy. All this stuff is off the books. What did Ronnie know, and when did Ronnie know it? Here's he's going to forget anyway. I think Sylvia. What I mean, also, in you know, in parallel to Watergate, not you know, there was no particular act of stupidity. The entire plot was an act of stupidity. But there was just some very good investigative journalism going on at the time, and there was an expo. There were multiple exposés published about U.S. involvement. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the actual first um, uh, coverage of this in the press was actually actually came in the Middle East, right? Like a Lebanese, yeah. or a, maybe not Lebanese, but it was a, a, a Middle Eastern journalist mm-hmm. who was the first one to break the story. You know, part of why we're doing this is sort of saying, well, why are we here where we are, you know, 2023 or whenever we're listening to it? And... I remember when the whole Iran-Contra scandal broke, mm-hmm. that there really was, at least to a certain point, a sense of, he's done. He's toast. There's absolutely no way Reagan can survive this. But he did. And not only did he, but nobody, nobody ended up serving a day in prison thanks to... Uh, Oliver, Oliver North did, but he was... Uh... Pardoned by by George H.W. thanks to Casper Weinberger. You know, there there were, of course, televised congressional hearings, and this is just as CNN becomes CNN as we know it. Um, Was C-SPAN around at this time? It was, but this was one of the first that got like wall-to-wall coverage because you had Oliver North in Full military guard, full oh, yeah. like ramrod. What and and there was one big difference between Watergate and Iran Contra, especially when it came to the hearings. Watergate, they all spilled their guts. Iran Contra, they jumped on their swords and said, "I'm to blame, not not the president. I'm to blame." Especially Bill Casey. William well, Casey. Ron, uh, Oliver pretty much was like, "Hey." I was just following orders. I'm not the blame. I was just a loyal soldier. So you're going to have to go. It was a, that decision was above me. And then Kate, well, I remember William Casey said, I, the buck stopped with me. So he decided I'm going to take the bullet for Reagan. And then when Reagan came out and said, I don't recall two, three, four dozen times, that was it. And, and honestly, if we're going to talk to me, one of the, so the someone said, you know, like, how is this any different from how the United States has done business, you know, and conducted itself in foreign relations? It's not right, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think one of the reasons that so what is why is Iran Contra so important? And I think to me, one of the the key legacies of Iran Contra is we do it's this kind of first glimpse of like post-truth presidential policy or presidential um, uh, like in uh, protocol, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, I don't remember, I don't recall. Um, 
And so it's, this to me is the sliver of how politics eventually moves into like the post-truth era. And, right. And for those of us, you know, born after this event or, you know, shortly, like at least those of us born after Watergate who have never seen a president taken down by scandal. Yeah. Right. Th this is the playbook for how to how to get out of it. Right. Just yeah. yep. say I nobody told me anything. I don't remember anything. I wasn't there. I didn't approve this. I have no idea how this even happened. Yep. Find somebody who's willing to fall on their sword, whether they're um, Bill Casey or Scooter Libby or whoever they are. And, uh, and and have them take the blame and then have your successor pardon them and then no problem. Uh, my uh, Gorbachev admiration spiel. Um, few people have failed as spectacularly at their job as Gorbachev, but ultimately made the right decision in failing to avoid a massive catastrophe and loss of life. Because I, I think that Gorbachev comes into power in 85 wanting to keep the Soviet Union going, right? And 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 I think I think Gorbachev is not an anti-communist. I think he's a communist who's a pragmatist, who's a technocrat, who says communism as un, we've understood it over the last 30 years is not working. We need to try a new approach to keep it going and and to keep our country strong. And so he feels like the right thing to do is this glasnost and perestroika, this restructuring, this openness. I think that he lets in some kind of bad actors in doing that. I, I don't know that Gorbachev was always a great judge of character. Um, kind of he auctioned off most of the Russian infrastructure to what would soon become the oligarchs, did he not? Yes. Uh, well, I, I think a lot of a lot of the actual auctioning ha happens under Yeltsin, but mm -hmm. a lot of the people it was auctioned off to were people Gorbachev had brought in during his administration to be like, you know, the head of this department or the head of that department, and they were basically the people who ended up being able to cough up the money to then buy the things at the auction and then become oligarchs, or in some cases like the actual presidents of the offshoot countries, because most of the guys, the first kind of people who are the presidents of all the independent republics of the Soviet Union are the people who had been the general secretaries of the communist parties in those countries at the moment where they declared independence. Gorbachev that and Ronnie. Legendary friendship, Raisa and Nancy. Legendary, not friends, frenemies. Well, because when Raisa okay. came over and they had a press conference, everyone was asking Raisa questions, and no one was talking to Nancy. So Nancy had a little schnit fit. Welcome to the summit at the summit. I'm special correspondent Andy Candias, live in Geneva, Switzerland, where President Ronald Reagan and Soviet President. Mikhail Gorbachev are meeting for the first time. And if that's not historic enough for you, it's also the first meeting of the world's two first ladies, Nancy Reagan and Raisa Gorbachev. Raisa Maximovna Gorbachev, please. Ooh, a liberated woman still using your maiden name. No, oh, funny American. Maximova is my patronomic. Oh, uh, yeah, yes, of course, of course. Uh, so Mrs. Reagan, 
Why did you hop on Air Force One and accompany the Gipper to Switzerland? Well, Andy, I couldn't wait to meet Raiza. Our husbands are hitting it off so well. I'm sure we'll be best girlfriends. We'll not say no to that, Nancy. Perhaps I help you deal with terrible disease in America called... Polio? Uh, Thanks, but we have a vaccine for that. Now, Mrs. Reagan, is that a Valentino suit? When in Europe, do like the Europeans. Lucky Miss Nancy, with so much time to learn about fashion. I'll be happy to teach you some lessons, Raiza. Why smell primetime special? <laughs> uh, so, Mrs. Gorbachev, were you just a housewife before your husband became president? Uh, Mikhail Sergeyevich is not president, Mr. Candias. He is general secretary of Communist Party. It's Candias. Uh, well, sounds like secretaries are a lot more powerful in Russia than they are in America. Indeed, some are. And no, I have never been housewife. Oh, okay. Were you a gymnast, figure skater, powerlifter? Nothing so exciting. I was sociologist. You weren't whistling Dixie about nothing so exciting. Oh, but I worked as hard as athletes. I walk all over Soviet Union interviewing women in villages and on farms. Oh, I hope you're wearing sensible shoes. <laughs> Sometimes barefoot when shoe gets stuck in mud. Well, looks like your job has kept you in great shape. Mm. Oh, no, just healthy. Ancestors of our peasants. I'm sure your ancestors would love your gray outfit. Mm, they love yours too, Nancy. Colorful, like mummers. Perhaps you buy it at fashion show, raising money to cure the AIDS. Whooping cough. We have a vaccine for that, too. But I'd love to take you to a fashion show, Raiza. Well, perhaps you two can do some shopping later. Oh, no, no. I, I cannot shop while here. Politburo a little short on funds? No. I just buy too many dolls and dresses for granddaughters. Oh, your grandmother, get out of town. Yes, please. I love to spoil little Ksenia and Anastasia, but feel like I neglect all other children in Soviet Union. When I visit them in orphanage and hospital, they say, Babushka, Babushka, did you bring me a present? I'll need your advice if I ever become a grandmother. <laughs> Wait, are Ron and Patty speaking to you again? They can always speak to me, Andy. We have freedom of speech in America, and boy, do they use it. We will have freedom of speech in Russia soon, thanks to Perestroika program that Mikhail Sergeyevich started. Wait, wait, so what is with all these, uh, what is it, petronymic uh, middle names? It's called patronymic, and is derived from father's name. Raisa Maximovna means Raisa, daughter of Maxim. That makes me Nancy Dr. Lorovna. Father was a surgeon. Yeah, great. Hmm. Let's see. I guess that would make me, Andy, one of five guys at a truck stop of itch. I have met a man a man like you, Mr. Candias. Now, Raiza, it's pronounced Candias. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Uh, what, what do you mean, Mrs. Gorbachev? So many children in Soviet Union grow up without fathers because of the Great Patriotic War. Uh, now, was that when Hitler invaded or Napoleon? I believe Raiza is using the Russian term for World War II, Andy. You're welcome, by the way, Raiza. But I know, no, thank you for anything, Nancy. 
But don't you want to thank America for how we helped Russia defeat Germany? During the war, I contributed to the Soviet Relief Fund when I was at Smith College. Did you? Perhaps you and college friends helped buy me first warm coat when I was tiny little girl. Oh, that would be such an honor. So warm coat, did it, did it clash with your uniform? Uniform? We wear potato sacks and drink hogwood tea, eat earthworm stew, singing patriotic songs to comfort widows of dead Red Army soldiers. My, everything but the bloodhound snapping at her rear end. Oh, no, no, that happened once, too, during forced relocation. And you were in college, Mrs. Reagan. <laughs> Sounds like you had a lot easier than Mrs. Gorbachev. Well, I suppose I did. How unfortunate that America hasn't been the site of any great famines or plagues. But what about the AIDS? Oh, they're all taking notes at the summit, Raisa. Uh, Mr. Reagan, I think Mrs. Gorbachev is asking why your husband's administration isn't making any efforts to combat Oh, my, look at that time. I've gotten an early appointment for chocolatier, so I have to run. Ta-ta. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have just witnessed a Teflon meltdown. What is this Teflon? Something Nancy put on her face? Probably. 87, there were, I think everybody thought the economy worldwide was just peachy keen. And then all of a sudden it didn't seem to be where we had the worst crash since the Great Depression. Although, was it as big a deal as it turned out as it was at the time? Because at the time, everybody was like, world is about to end another Great Depression. and it, Yeah, Black Monday. Yeah. I mean, they didn't really have any breaks on the automated trading. You would think there'd be some kind of tripwire or something to say, you know, once we it slides down like 50 points, let's cut off trading for everybody to just take a collective breath. The stock market was a big deal, but the 87 crash was a bigger deal when it happened than it seemed to turn out to be in retrospect. It didn't seem to have that much of a well, well, I mean, it, it, until it, was, 2008, you know. it was better than the 20s because, right. of yes. course, FDR put in safeguards. So, yep. but it, no it, it wasn't a pleasant time. Luckily, we no, have it, regulations it, it does end up being a bigger deal in Japan, right? This was yeah. kind of, uh, this this was when the uh, Japan's con economy went to the, the lost decades slash lost three decades. Oh, yeah. Um, and which was an interesting thing because Japan was kind of the China of the 1980s, right? People were, were like, Japan's going to take over, look at how advanced Japan is. They're leading in technology. They're going to, you know, be the technological and economic dominators of the world in the 21st century. And then oh, turns out that when you've got a declining population and massive overvalued uh, property, that's not in a sustainable equation for economic health. And so after the 1987 crash, they never really find their footing. The one thing that I will say as far as, as why that crash in particular has a sort of prominence in, you know, why we talk about it today is it is really one of those moments where you see the globalization of the economy, right? Because mm. the, the stock market crash begins on Friday 
and but it kind of stabilizes but then in early trading in asia um you know before monday in u.s time the markets are doing very poorly which of course really scares investors in the u.s and prompts very early sell-offs and only exacerbates the situation on black monday and i don't know that that if without the globalized economy that we had you know especially with the financialization of economics as of or of um the financialization of uh cities you definitely are able to see the globalization of the stock market have a a really substantial impact on worsening this crash and it was never a problem again Um, what were the cons? Okay, we all know Ronald Reagan. Did he ever say the word AIDS in public? Nope. Uh, no, that's what they people have always said. He never said it. Uh, Bush did. What were the policy consequences? What I mean, did the CDC dedicate any resources to fighting AIDS during the Reagan administration? Nope. Well, that's um, what- I think they they had a like a NIH was doing some work. Um, I think the CDC was, and there were so many competing labs. Mm-hmm. They tr- the, the CDC tried to gain more funding for AIDS research, and every request was denied by the Reagan administration. It wasn't until you know Rock Hudson came out and they found out he had it and was dying from it. They said, hey. This is touching people we know now. Maybe there might be something we possibly could do. And even then, and it really wasn't until again we get to HW and Magic Johnson announces that he's contracted it. And uh, was it Robert Michael Glazer's wife? Oh yeah, Elizabeth Glazer. Elizabeth Glazer, who got it from a blood transfusion, and uh, Ryan, help me out. The Ryan White. Ryan White, John picking up, and that's that's going. You know, by that point we're well into HW. But Reagan, yeah, they denied everything. They denied all the uh, requests. He would never say it. Uh, There was absolutely that moralistic uh, overtone of all of that. I mean, was there a personal aspect of the moralistic overtone to Reagan, or was it a policy decision he did not want to alienate his? Um, alienate his supporters because a woman as fashionable as Nancy had a lot of gay friends. But the religious, <laughs> but the religious define right. The word, define the word friend. <laughs> Acquaintances. That's yeah. what, I mean, that's what um, I read in Cranston. It was the Kitty Kelly bio, Kitty Kelly package job on her, but supposedly she had a lot of gay designer friends. All of her, you know, public career dating back to the 1950s i mean supposedly they would have they would let gay couples stay overnight in the white house so they were private so the image that i've gotten was private tolerance public intolerance yeah i wouldn't surprise me (laughs) it seems like it tracks Mm -hmm. again Um, this this is the height of the power of the memorial majority and i don't think they had any problem seeing Plus, Reagan was trying to uh, ban Playboy and Penthouse from military uh, installations. Well, and Mies was. That's a bad idea. 
Yeah. If you can't jerk off in a foxhole, what are you gonna what's the point of even volunteering? I would like to dedicate this to my, That's my the grandfather, my great grandfather, my dad, and my brother on oh. the memorial set. The, the greatest hits. <laughs> lightning rod if anybody wants to say one thing about reagan that we haven't said yeah reagan's relationship with margaret thatcher um what i mean did they just see kindred spirits in each other or i they're I, both they're both macho i think they do see in themselves see in each other common interests a shared sort of icky white anglophone sort of interventionist role for their countries and also key of maintaining and promoting conservative values and conservative economic programs. And so I, I do very much think that they see in each other each other. At a time when both <laughs> at a time when both countries have very parallel economic and cultural rises. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Game also, recognizes game. Okay, quick we can hit this one quick. Does Reagan, via the Bork nomination, transform Supreme Court nominations into a public spectacle? God knows it hit. God knows it hit the golden era with Trump. With excuse me, with Clarence Thomas. Oh yeah, I think but, that's. I think that's on Gingrich. No, I think any any time a name becomes a verb, you've done something <laughs> correct. And so, getting borked. Is you got to get you got to give him a little bit of credit because that was a spectacle. And let's forget, and let's not forget that the second choice was not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but the well, well, yes, Ginsburg that like smoked pot. Therefore, we couldn't is... have him even get to the hearing. And who did we end up with? Remember, Anthony Kennedy. It is due okay. to my inclination on the Bork hearing is that Reagan knew that Bork was going to be a controversial nominee, but. He felt like Bork had the bona fides to really push the court in the direction he wanted to see it go. And so he's like, well, traditionally, the Senate has been deferential to presidential nominees. So if I can get this guy in there and I can get this guy through, then uh, and, it, and, it, and I think if Bork had played politics a little bit better, he probably would have been OK. Decided to, to debate him instead. Right. He he decided to debate the U.S. senators in the U.S. Senate, which is never a good idea. It um, makes for great TV. Yeah. And so uh, Bork's political naivete or perhaps just unwillingness to let a argument rest. Lawyer's um, ego. Yes. Uh, no fucks to give. Sinks him. And, and ultimately, I think that for Reagan, ultimately... I don't I don't think that helped him because he he'd lost the fight, right? I mean, if, if he wins the fight, if he gets Bork in there, then hooray, the president's strong. And yeah, this guy was controversial, but we got our guy in there. But he loses the fight and he has to settle for Anthony Kennedy. Third choice. Third choice, right. So you know, I don't think politically it 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 strengthened him to have to 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 go to the third stringer for the Supreme Court. Um but I, yeah, I think that um he probably knew that it was going to be a little bit of a political fight, but I think it was one that he expected to win. Let, let me just give mine because it's going to be the rare, very rare grace note. The one thing I will give Reagan credit for, 
the speech after the Challenger explosion. That was a good one, yes. Peggy Noonan wrote a beautiful speech. It was delivered impeccably, and we needed it. So I will give him credit for that. Reagan was good at running the play that was called for him to run as the character, the president of the United States. Um, and in in so doing, he delivered his best acting performance, perhaps exceeding the role where he just played a dead guy. <laughs> and instead um, of a chimp, he was with Nancy. <laughs> I think down. I, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Chelsea. I, I was think, just insulting Nancy. <laughs> I think I um, w will ask us as his to put on our historian hats and to think a little bit less about Reagan the man and to think about to quote Sean Wilentz and I'll put this in our in our reading list. This can be the Chelsea's book club of the entire episode. Patrick. Chelsea's book club. This time it's about Reagan. <laughs> and it's coming at the very, very end of the show. Um, so uh, Sean Wilentz writes a book called The Age of Reagan. And, and so I think I would push us to put on our historian hats and think less about Reagan the man and to think about this sort of age of, of Reagan, right? So the conservative movement beginning with Nixon and Watergate and right conservatism having to go local and then um, Reagan ascendant and then his long legacy, both um, politically, culturally, but also in the individual people who he had circling around him um, in his administration and how those people continue to show up um, in politics for the next uh, many decades. And so, in prison stints. And so, um, yes, I think that would be my final thought is, yes, Reagan is a, a such an important figure in 20th century American politics, but I think it's really important to think broad, more broad and to think of this age of Reagan. Paul? To put a capstone on the Reagan administration? Well, kind of like Nixon, I would say that, uh, and here's another grace note that you're never going to hear again, he proves the wisdom of our founding fathers by creating three branches of government, which, you know, one of which can be held in check, or that the executive branch, at least, can have someone completely checked out at the helm, but it still continues to function relatively well. <laughs> I think he kind of proves, by negative example, the strength of American democracy and the durability of the uh, of American government. And it would, of course, that'll last until 2000, you know, January 6, 2020, but we'll, 2021, mm -hmm. we'll worry about that later. Mm -hmm. uh, Sylvia, do you want to stick with Thatcher? Or do you have a different, a new one? Yeah, because I really can't think of anything positive to say about him. <laughs> no, Thatcher, no. Thank you for reminding us of Thatcher, because that was important. Patrick. I mean, he certainly had an outsized effect, even for a president, on international pop culture. Uh, you know, without the Reagan era, would we have had Blade Runner or any of the other seminal works of 
uh, capitalism is so bad it, it is literally a dystopia science fiction. Well, also, again, the era there were there were all sorts of nuclear, you know, there like not dystopia, like the world is going to end. Movies like I mean, Reds yeah, and Miracle could Mile. Gotten, like, and... Could we have gotten Red Dawn or War Games or? <laughs> that is legitimately the scariest movie that has ever been right yeah yes the the craziest thing about it is was like a made for tv movie that was like on like public television in britain and they're just like hey sunday afternoon why didn't you watch this and (laughs) And then you could watch the day after i was about to say the day after did not really uh instill hope in people even though reagan was insisting that nuclear war was survivable i'm like by who by Jane Alexander in Testament and the Terminator. From sunny Chicago, Illinois, it's the game everyone at the Rubik's Cube Solving Contest is talking about. Six Degrees of Reagan's Fall! That's right, it is Six Degrees of Reagan's Fall, the game show that asks you how Ronald Reagan fucked up the modern world. I'm your host, Andy Candias, and let's meet our hopeful contestants. Joining us from sunny Gary, Indiana, it's Gary Indiana. Happy to be here, Mr. Candias. That's Candias. Huh? Never mind. How is Gary? I'm doing great. I'm at the city. Oh, well, it's an industrial wasteland of broken dreams and broken promises. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a place that might be thriving if Ronald Reagan hadn't worked to squelch the power of American unions and foster the conditions that made it easier to ship manufacturing jobs overseas. Again, just happy to be here. Our second contestant comes all the way from sunny Dixon, Illinois. Meet Roxy Fred, Illinois. Hi. And what do you do in the childhood home of America's shame? I change out the urinal cakes on Reagan's childhood bed. Thank you for your service. Okay, so you all know the game. I'm going to name a problem facing the U.S. in 2023, and you buzz in when you can tie it back to the Gipper. The fewer degrees of separation, the more points you earn. So like Ronnie himself would say, here we go again. Question one, the federal deficit. Wait, I thought Reagan campaigned on reigning in federal spending and reducing the size of the government. Yes, he did say those things, didn't he? Roxy, can you help us out? Idolization of Reagan's fiscal policies by the Republican Party led to a series of policies that prioritized high military spending while cutting services. That's right. Ballooning federal spending while getting mad about it was right from Bonzo's playbook. Put some points on the board, Joe. Next question. How is Reagan to blame for the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan? The 80s saw a rise in homelessness and crime related to the mentally ill. People like John Hinckley, because of a nationwide policy closing mental health hospitals, modeled off a similar policy from California, instituted by Ronald Reagan. Correct. What a shitty thing that Reagan personally did. Uh, But Roxy, can you do better? Ronald Reagan caused his own assassination attempt by being Ronald Reagan. You can't get more concise or accurate than that. Contestants, how is Reagan to blame for reduced electronics manufacturing in the United States? Don't you think it's a little reductive to try to lay the blame for all of the ills of modern capitalism at the feet of one politician? The economy is a complex web of interconnected systems and huge society-wide trends over the past half century. You know, Gary, 
I think you've given us all a lot to think about. And I, for one, intend to move forward with a more nuanced view of... <laughs> Roxy, can you blame Reagan for us? Venture capital in the technology sector shifted away from investing back into the company in favor of stock buybacks and CEO paychecks, which was a result of the relaxed taxation of profits championed by Ronald Reagan. Got it. <laughs> that was close. I almost had to admit some nuance into my worldview for a second. <laughs> Heaven forbid. You said it. So. Uh, contestants, how is Ronald Reagan to blame for the Pinochet regime? No guesses? <laughs> well, that's okay. It's a trick question. That was Kissinger's fault. <laughs> and now for all the marbles. Last question. How is Ronald Reagan to blame for the film career of Rihanna? Roxy? Rihanna's start in Battleship 2012, which was greenlit due to the success of Michael Bay's Transformers, which is based on the popular 1984 cartoon, which was actually just a 30-minute toy commercial, which became a profitable format because... Bring it on home, baby! Because Ronald Reagan deregulated children's television. Exactly. That trademark is all on Ronnie. Roxy, you really blamed it on Reagan. So Joe, tell her what she's won. You've won a trip in a time machine to sunny 1949, where you can take advantage of a strong economy and unions to buy an affordable family home on a blue-collar salary and retire in the 1970s with a robust pension before all that becomes a distant dream. I'm going to be middle class. If you have a time machine, why don't you just go back and stop Reagan? We tried that. He just keeps coming back stronger. Well, that's all, folks. But stay tuned for the season finale of Blame Victoria. Everything you know about history was made up by a Victorian pervert. With your host, Florian the Victorian Historian. I've been Andy Candias, and remember, Reagan invented crack. as my last thing everyone has said really nice for the most part nice-ish things about reagan <laughs> but i do want us to not lose sight of the fact that he and his political movement do great harm to marginalized people in the united states that we are still unraveling and still undoing we are undoing the harm that he he did upon marginalized communities especially uh, the economically marginalized and people of color and the homeless really, crisis mental right. health crisis yep and i think that's really shitty and i don't think there's any better way of ending a reagan episode by saying that's really shitty agreed oh, and reagan. that was that sucked we shouldn't have done that yeah. i would not do that again well um, that's okay because it's not like we're going to follow it up with a father and son presidential pair that never works and we learned our lesson then didn't we find out when we return with george h w bush supposedly the third term of reagan i will not stand for this john quincy adams slander (laughs) (laughs) and that is how you close every episode the sequel is better than the first one 
TV Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bucola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network. And listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like. <laughs>